Let's take our Bibles tonight, please, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you were here on Wednesday night, you know what I've been preparing for this evening. And I'm going to look at some verses here about anxiety tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I would encourage you uh, to take some notes tonight, not because I'm going to say anything uh, spectacular or particularly intelligent. It would shock you if I did. But I'm going to give you some scriptures. And the Word of God is quick and powerful. It can help you. And so let's, let's uh, you say, well, I don't, I don't have anxiety. But you know somebody that does. And maybe you can help them with some verses tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I just pulled out the morning message. I almost preached that again. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read our scripture, then we'll pray, and I, I want to make a few comments to, to start, and uh, I, I, it's funny, it's, the message tonight is called The Spirit of Fear, and uh, with that, I'm, I'm going to be honest, well, the thing that I'm afraid of is mischaracterizing this. We, I, don't, I don't want to put down anybody that is struggling with anxiety or fear. And, uh, but I, I, I want you to understand something tonight. I, I want to help. And I believe that the Word of God has the answers for everything. I believe that with all my heart. Now, I know and I understand that there may be some medical issues that would cause us to uh, go in a certain direction with these things. But for the society we live in at a large, it seems like we are overtaken by fear today. I want to show you what the Bible has to say about that, and especially this word, anxiety. But we take the title from verse 7 tonight, the spirit of fear. Look, if you will, in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promises of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also... Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's pray. Father, help us. Lord, as we, with great respect, approach the scriptures tonight, is, is a difficult study. But I pray, Lord, that the spirit of God would open our eyes and help us to see the truth of God's word. And may the spirit of God guide my heart and my thoughts and my words. Oh, Lord, that I'd speak what you'd have me to speak. And Father, we'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I remember growing up in just south of here, a couple miles. On a, we, we grew up in a place that was perfect for boys. There was a forest behind our house. We could climb trees. We could build forts. There was a river that ran through it. We'd, we'd play in there in the water. We'd fish or whatever. We had friends from the neighborhood that would come over and hang out, guys that I went to school with, what have you. And in all my memories of growing up, I don't remember anybody ever saying, I have anxiety. That was kind of a foreign thing. We didn't hear people talk like that. Now, I'm not saying that nobody did have anxiety. But I think we've come to a point in our society today that, and, and just, just knowing this, I, I came a, a few months ago, I guess it was, to a Thursday night teen night and was hanging out with some of the teens, and I was shocked to hear how many said, well, I suffer from anxiety. I suffer from anxiety. Well, I, I'm going through some stuff, and so I have anxiety. And I'm not here to belittle that. I'm not here to say that your issues are not real or you're not struggling or suffering in some way. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible has an answer for it. And if we can understand it, perhaps we can start moving forward. Here's, here's the difference. Growing up, I think that if anybody said I had anxiety, it was something that they would strive to overcome. Today, 
we've, we've taken it to a point of acceptance, or it is now my lifestyle. I have anxiety, so I cannot do this or that or the other thing. And unfortunately, it's become, for some, a built-in excuse. And again, I'm not belittling, and I'm not saying, I'm just saying that perhaps you don't understand what God is saying about anxiety and what fear is really about. And so I just want to take a few moments tonight and look at it from a biblical perspective and see if we can understand. I do not have all the answers. I don't pretend to. But as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, I did a study, and several weeks ago I preached from Isaiah 6, and God pricked my heart about Uzziah. King Uzziah died, and I looked back at the life of King Uzziah, and I had a whole new perspective on Isaiah chapter 6, that now they had lost this good and godly king, and Isaiah was actually confessing that his sins were the same as the people. He was a man of unclean lips, and he dwelt among a people of unclean lips, and he had fallen to that level of, of leadership, now complaining and gossiping with everybody else, wondering what was going to happen next. Well, God pricked my heart about this chapter in the very same way. And I begin to study the context of it to try to understand what Paul was saying to Timothy and God opened my eyes to something completely new. Not that the scripture has changed, but my attitude towards it has changed. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. One he wrote in Macedonia, 1 Timothy we call it, the book of 1 Timothy or the epistle of 1 Timothy. He wrote it in Macedonia just shortly after he left Ephesus. And as he wrote the book of 1 Timothy, and he wrote this great letter to his, his student Timothy, if you will, he was telling him how to organize the churches of Ephesus. There were several. You'll remember that Paul loved that place called Ephesus. There must have been such a great revival that took place. And those that have taken part in the Acts Bible study over the year, we understand that Paul saw a great revival in Ephesus. And as he was returning from one of his missionary journeys, he would not even dock in Ephesus. He said, why not? If he loved them so much for fear that he would never leave again. He loved it so much. So he traveled a little bit south, and there he called for the elders of Ephesus to come and meet with him. And Paul had such a desire to see the churches of Ephesus flourish in this region that he left Timothy. He called him my own beloved to organize the churches and to set into some place some sound doctrine. Now understand this, as we look at 1 Timothy tonight, I'm just going to give you an overview very quickly so we can understand 2 Timothy as Paul wrote this letter to Timothy about the churches of Ephesus from this place called Macedonia. In chapter 1, Timothy's focus in ministry was to be sound doctrine. He wanted him to teach sound doctrine, teach the word of God. To go about all these churches and help them understand what God's will was for their life. And so he says, I want you to teach sound doctrine. That's just my summary of chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he was to give them some instruction in prayer. Teach them how to pray. That's important. Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples how to pray. And Paul wanted Timothy to teach the churches how to pray. And then the rest of chapter 2, he taught them about the behavior of women in the church. If it were me, I'd have given him a whole chapter, but he just chose to give the women part a half a chapter. And then we move on to chapter three, and they're how to instruct pastors and deacons. How do we find pastors and deacons, elders and deacons, to install into the local church that they might uh, flourish and have the leadership that they need? In chapter four, he writes to Timothy, and he talks about the challenges of ministry in the latter times. This know that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, because of seducing spirits, and he said it is going to be a spiritual battle. He said, well, that was no problem for Timothy. He was a long way from the latter times. No, sir. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said that this was the fulfillment of the latter-day prophecy prophesied by Joel. We are living in the latter days ever since the day of Pentecost. 
In chapter 5, he wrote to Paul or to Timothy and he said, here's some instructions for widows in the assembly. How, how should we treat the elders of the assembly? And that's what he talked about in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, he talks about servants. How do, we, how do servants obey their masters? And he also talked about dealing with disputes. And as Paul often did in his epistles, there was a lot of little short sentences or proverbs near the end. And he dealt with many things, how to live humbly, how to live modestly. There was a ton of pressure upon this young man. Halfway through his letter, Paul said to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. Think about that. He was just a young man, a kid. And he says to him, I want you to teach doctrine. I want you to instruct the women. This is how they are to live in the church. And I want you to find pastors and elders and deacons and I want you to install them. I want you to talk to widows. I want you to talk to the aged men, the young men. I want you to teach and teach and teach and teach and teach and go around from church to church, essentially doing the work of an evangelist without the gifts of the apostle. He was just a boy. When Paul said, let no man despise thy youth, he was assuming that some would despise his youth. Some wouldn't listen because he was just a kid, a young man, somebody that had not been around the block yet. And why should we listen to him? There was a ton of pressure. David understood that pressure when he wrote, my flesh and my heart faileth. But my God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David would retreat to the cave of Adullam, which represents a place of despair So that's a little bit tonight about the prior context. Now Paul writes a second letter. Now Paul's in a Roman prison. Think about this. Everything that Paul had instructed Timothy to do, he was also doing in other places. Would you agree with that statement? Paul left Timothy. By the way, there's only one model for the local church. There's only one model, the word of God. And if Timothy was to follow it, so was Paul. And as Paul went to places and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and people were being saved and churches were being established and Paul was helping in those places to install elders and deacons and all the rest, the the same fate, this fate befell him. He ended up in a Roman prison and we know that eventually he'd give his life for the sake of the gospel. Make no doubt about it, when a preacher went to prison... In those days under Roman rule, your precedents are John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And now Paul writes to Timothy. And look at chapter 1 in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and let's read it a little bit slower. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. I want you to notice some key phrases, and we'll just slow down here and stop for a moment. And I'll be honest with you, there's be more teaching than preaching tonight, but I want you to see this phrase, mindful of thy tears. Paul did not say, I remember your tears. That would imply that the last time I was there and we said goodbye, you were tearful and you were hugging on my neck and you missed me and you loved me and and you were sad to see me go. But he does not use the word remember. Later on, a couple verses later, he'll say, I call to remembrance. It has a completely different meaning. The word remember means to call to memory. It means means literally that it can be involuntary or voluntary. So sometimes you'll be talking to somebody and and they will say something and you go, "Oh, oh, oh, yeah, I remember that. It just kind of pops into your head. There's other times where you can just, in conversation, I remember the time and you've never forgotten it. But the word mindful means I am marking it. 
I am being careful to understand. I I am putting a a marker. In other words, Paul says, I understand your tears. I'm mindful of it. I'm aware of your tears. That's exactly what it means. I'm aware. Now think about that. Why would Timothy be fearful? Paul said, I want you to go and I want you to preach. And I want you to install pastors and deacons. And I want you to take all this responsibility upon your life. And oh, don't think the ministry is going to be all a bed of roses. They're going to despise your youth. You're not going to have a lot of respect in some people's eyes. And by the way, the same thing that you're doing, I'm now rotten in a prison cell for. And likely going to die. Well, that's a lot of pressure. And so Paul says, I'm aware. I'm aware of how your heart is hurting. I am mindful of your tears. Well, that opened my eyes. When I consider the context and everything that is going on, and we see the previous context, and now we see his present condition, and look at the next thing. First of all, he says, be mindful of thy tears. Now, verse 5, he says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am also persuaded that is in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. I want you to notice that phrase, secondly tonight, stir up the gift of God, which is in thee. Some of you folks like to go camping and uh, have a campfire. How many of you like to have a campfire? Yeah? I like a campfire as long as we can make those sandwiches. You know what I'm talking about, the grilled cheese? Mm. But I, I know this, over the years from just having a few campfires, every once in a while you have to poke the embers. You get it stirred up and you put some fresh wood on there and you, that's what this phrase literally means to stir up the gift of God. It means to stir up the embers. It means to fan the flame. It's, it's the literal definition of this phrase. Now here's what I also know. If your flame is roaring three feet high, four feet high, and, and, and it's, you're, you're having to move your lawn chair back because it's too hot and your kids can't get close enough to roast a marshmallow to lose their eyebrows, you don't have to stir up the embers. So what was Paul saying to Timothy? Timothy, your fire's gone out. You have to stir it up. I, I want you to remember when I laid hands upon you, And God has allowed me as an apostle to to put this gift upon you of ministry. But you've let the fire go out, Timothy. I'm mindful of your tears. I know you're hurting. And I know you've let the fire go out. Let me encourage you to stir it up again. I'm just giving you the context here before we get to the principles, okay? Listen, here's the next verse. Look at verse (laughs) 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Paul is not just wasting words here. When he said, let no man despise thy youth, he was saying to Timothy, some men are going to despise your youth. You're going to have a hard time getting respect in some quarters, but I want you to just keep preaching and keep pressing on and keep sharing the word of God and keep helping people and keep loving people and keep building the church and, and let no man despise that. He wasn't wasting words. And I believe the exact same is true here. When he says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, he's basically saying to Timothy, Timothy, you're fearful. But that spirit did not come from God. The spirit of fear is not of the Spirit of God, because God hath not given it unto us. Now look at verse 8. This reinforces this thought. Let me finish verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. I've read that verse a hundred times and not completely understood it. 
Well, we're not ashamed of Christ. We read in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Sometimes we think the word ashamed, and one of the definitions in our English language of ashamed is to be embarrassed by, painfully embarrassed, to the point where we don't want to be associated with somebody because we're ashamed of their behavior or their actions. Paul says this, when he uses the word ashamed, it means to shrivel up and shy away from. Think about Peter on the night of the crucifixion. Have you been with Jesus? No, not me. That's the literal definition of being ashamed. Was Peter ashamed of Jesus in the sense that he was embarrassed by him? No. He was afraid. He was afraid to to be judged and tried and crucified like Jesus was about to be. He didn't want to face that same judgment. And when Paul says to Timothy, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. He wasn't saying that Timothy was embarrassed by them. But instead, Timothy had become very cautious. And his life had shriveled up. And his flame had gone out. And he was being affected by the spirit of fear. And Paul says, I'm even mindful of your tears. I've heard about it. I'm aware. 2 Timothy chapter 1 paints a picture of a young man who was scared. He said, well, I'd be scared too. Yeah, I, I probably would too. To think that everything that I am supposed to do has landed Paul in a Roman prison where he faces death. I'd be scared too. But here's the truth. God has not given us that spirit. Let me show you some biblical principles now that we understand the context a little bit. Understand why Timothy was afraid. He was this young man with this incredible responsibility and he was under enormous pressure. But we need to define what fear is. There's, in my mind, at least three different types of fear. There's the God-given emotion of fear. That fear preserves life. Think about that. God has given us the emotion of fear, right? If you get too close to the edge of a cliff, you know, I'm going to step back. The fear comes in. How many of you have ever been to the CN Tower? Ever been up there? The first time I ever went there, the first that I can remember, I could not walk out on that glass floor. There was just something about looking down those whatever hundred stories it is. And I saw people putting their babies on there, and I thought, they're crazy. They said, you can actually, this will hold the weight of six elephants. I said, I don't know how much six elephants weigh, but I don't know how much I weigh. I wasn't going, I just could, a couple times, and I went like that. We went up there with the Faithman Quartet, and Jeff Schultz would not go on that glass. That time, I did. I walked out there, I said, face my fears, and I went out there. But God gives us a rational fear, an emotion called fear that saves us from harm. That's that's God-given. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible also uses the word fear when talking about our reverence and our awe of God. That does not mean we are afraid of God, but we have an awe and a reverence for him. But then there's this third type of fear that we see in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's a a fear that is irrational. Now, we had talked about at the beginning of this tonight and in our introduction about anxiety. And here's why I believe that people accept anxiety today as a norm, as something that I have. But here's the truth. Anxiety never stands alone. It is a response to fear. Did you catch what I said? So in other words, if you were to say tonight, well, I, you don't understand, preacher, I feel anxious all the time. The question you have to ask yourself is, what are you afraid of? What is the stressor? What is pressing you? He said, well, it's, it's nothing I'm afraid of. It's just all the pressure I'm under. Can I tell you this? When we're under pressure and it's causing anxiety, that's the fear of failure. You're afraid to fail. 
You don't want to let people down. And so we try to live up to that pressure. I know people that are under all kinds of pressure and they just shrug it off and they don't care because they're not afraid to fail. So sometimes we have an irrational fear that brings us to the place of anxiety. But I want to tell you tonight, it can be overcome by the help of God. So let's, let's look at this thing called fear tonight. We've talked about some previous contexts, and we've looked at Timothy's present condition in 2 Timothy chapter 1, but I want to give you some principled conclusions. God recognizes fear as a weakness of our flesh. The Bible says, literally, fear not, 365 times in the Bible. There are other times where he says, be not afraid, it is I. There are times where the exact phrase, fear not, doesn't appear, but fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The variations are maybe a thousand more, but God tells us so often not to fear. He knows it's a weakness of our flesh, but I want to give you four things tonight. And here's where I'd really appreciate if you are struggling or if you want to help somebody, take some notes tonight. Number one, we have to acknowledge it. That sounds simple, but let me show you what the scripture says. Acknowledge it. Verse 7 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Paul was acknowledging Timothy's fear for what it was. It was a spirit of fear. It was not of God, and therefore it was irrational. God, as I said a moment ago, God has given us an emotional fear, something to be afraid of, something to help us be safe and protected. But he's saying to Timothy, that's not what this is, Timothy. This is the spirit of fear. This is the spirit of fear. This is from an external source. This is not something that God has placed upon your life. And we need to acknowledge, first of all, that when we are fearful in an irrational way, it is not something that God has placed upon us. And so how do we arrive at that? Here's a couple of questions we ask. Number one, is my fear based on an inevitable outcome? Is my fear based on an inevitable outcome? So here's, here's for example... If you were to say, Pastor, I want you to do this tonight. I want you to get in your car, go down to Port Dover, and, and get on, on, down there on the Water Street and get up to about 100 miles an hour and drive off the end of the pier. The inevitable outcome is I'm probably going to die if I were to do something foolish like that. And so you say, I'm not going to do that. Why aren't you going to do that? Are you afraid? I'll say, yeah, I'm afraid. There's an inevitable outcome, and God has put a fear in my heart, and, and I know it's just not safe to do so. I'm just not going to do that. As a matter of fact, my mom is having a birthday this week, and Paul knows if he says her age, he's going to die. He knows that. There's an inevitable outcome if he announces that she's turning 75 on Tuesday. And so God put a fear in his heart. He wouldn't say a word. I'm not afraid of her. But an irrational fear is completely different. We have some inevitable outcomes laid out in the Bible for us that we ought to be afraid of. Listen to this. For the wages of sin is what? Death. If I don't accept Jesus Christ and get forgiveness for my sins, I'm going to go to a Christless eternity in a place called hell. I ought to fear that. And God has put in my heart a real fear of what sin can do to us. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15 says, The way of the transgressors is hard. We ought to fear how we behave. If your answer is yes to the question, is my fear based on an inevitable outcome, then your fear is rational and protective. We all get afraid from time to time, but rightfully so, if God has put it in our hearts. But here's the second question we have to ask. Is my fear based on an imaginative outcome? So we ask first, is my fear based on an inevitable outcome? Is this absolutely going to come to pass? If I break the law, am I going to jail? 
If I kill somebody, is God going to require my life? The Bible says so. But an imaginative outcome is one where we sit down and say, well, if I do that, here's the million possibilities of what could go wrong. And we begin to fear. Listen, Paul was saying to Timothy, hey, Timothy, just because I went to prison doesn't mean you're going to. Just, just because my life has been offered a sacrifice, Christ doesn't necessarily require that of you. Jesus said the same thing. Peter had been told by the Lord Jesus Christ that he was going to die if he were to continue in the ministry. He says, Some, one day men will carry you, will you not go? And Peter said to him, well, oh, that's fine, but what about this guy over here? He says, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. In other words, it doesn't matter what's happening to the next guy. You worry about you. And Timothy had an irrational fear because he saw what happened to Paul and he says, oh, the same thing's going to happen to me. And he was scared and hiding. Listen, the outcome is not always the same. God made Paul a martyr for a purpose. But we do not read of Timothy dying in the Bible. His fear was irrational. He was making up, I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people and I'll say, well, why? And they'll say, well, because this might happen. Might, or this might happen, or this could happen, or this might happen. That's called borrowing trouble. It's worrying about things that have never come to pass. Sometimes teenagers, I wish they would think a little bit more like that sometimes. Sometimes they don't think at all. They get in a car and do 100 mile an hour down the middle of the road and they just think everything's going to be okay and they don't don't think ahead. But I, I know people that just imagine what could go wrong, what might go wrong, what is the worst outcome that could happen because no doubt that's going to happen to me and that is an irrational fear based on an imaginative outcome. That's what Timothy was doing. So first of all, we have to acknowledge. Ask yourself the question, when you're, when you're fearful, am I afraid because God has put a fear in my heart? This is a genuine danger. This is something that's going to take my life. This is something that's going to hurt me. This is something that's going to hurt others. This is something that's going to hurt my relationship with God. There's going to be consequences for what I'm about to do. Or are you fearful because you've made up the outcome in your mind and you believe it'll come to pass? That's irrational. And let me say this, when you live like that, you will have anxiety. So first of all, we acknowledge it. Number two, we attack it. Don't avoid it. Today, we've accepted it. Something happens in our lives and we just accept, well, I've got, I'm anxious. I'm, that's just who I am. I have anxiety. I suffer from anxiety. Don't accept it. Attack it. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God's given you something else. Now, I want you to look at a couple verses with me here, if you will. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look there. We're going to look at a few verses now. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'm going to wait till I hear the pages stop. All right, you're all there. Look at verse 3 with me, because I want you to see this. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I'm going to make a prediction. We see our society 
It's morality, our society's morality crumbling at an alarming rate. My prediction is, is 10 years from now, there will be not enough mental health institutions to contain everybody. Sin and depravity destroy the mind. And this thing called anxiety is going to explode because people simply don't have the divine life within them. Notice what this verse says again. Read it again. It's important. Verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. He said, I'm struggling. You need a relationship with Christ. God says, I've given you all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. He's called us to glory and to virtue. And there are these great and exceeding promises, precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. He has not given us the spirit of fear, but his divine nature in us gives us love and power and a sound mind. That's what we need today. Boy, we need sound minds today. What a mess our society's in. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is an important passage. Somebody say, well, you're picking on me. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just, I want to help you tonight. It won't be exhaustive. We don't have the time for that tonight. But I want you to see some things that perhaps would help you. We're talking about attacking this problem. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now stop right there. Understand, for the child of God, every battle is a spiritual battle. Would you, would you agree with that? Everybody nodding off tonight, come on, help me out. We won't be here much longer if you help me out. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Years ago, my wife and I had to come to that realization when dealing with teenagers growing up. We just had to come to the point where we understood, hey, there's, there's a devil behind every, every door here. This is a spiritual battle, and we're going to have to pray for this situation. And yes, as parents, you still got to rebuke, and you still got to chasten, and you still got to discipline. But we have to understand there's a spiritual battle going on, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and all the rest. And so the Bible says here that there's a spiritual battle going on in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Listen to this, verse 5. Casting down imaginations. Remember what we talked about today, earlier? A lot of our problems are these ideas that we, we have all these outcomes. If I do this, then maybe this will happen. That's your imagination. You're dreaming. And I'm going to tell you, there, there, I, I, I don't think it's wrong to count the costs, and I don't think it's wrong to be reasonable in our assessment of a situation, as long as we are right and biblical and we've prayed about it. But just to look at something and say, well, I'm not going to do that because I, the stress will kill me or may, I'm afraid of that situation is irrational. And so notice what he says here, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. People get so caught up in their things that they have today that they forget God. It's become exalted in their life and it becomes the primary thing in their life. I know right now of a boy, he's not in our church, I believe he's about 12 years old. And he's under constant doctor supervision. He's traveling back and forth to a sick kid's hospital just to talk about his anxiety and the things that he's going through in his life. And I'm not diminishing his problems. But listen, 
His dad has not had him in church in years. Well, we're Christians. Why aren't you in church? Well, because our, our son's got this big thing going on, and we, we just got to help him. We just got to get him right. And uh, yeah. No, no. You got the cart before the horse. He needs a relationship with Christ. He needs the one that can bear our burdens. He needs the one that says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what that family has done is they've taken that thing and they've exalted it against the knowledge of God. They've made it the most important thing in their life. It has become what has defined them rather than their pursuit of Christ. Look at verse 5, continue. That exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And here's what else we need to do. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. When your mind starts running, where's it headed? If it's not in obedience to Christ, cut it off. You say, oh, you don't understand. I just lay in bed all night and I fret and I worry and I think about all these terrible things that can happen. And listen, you say, well, you've never experienced that, Pastor. That's not true. I don't know if I've ever told anybody this, but when I was a little boy, every single night when I laid in bed, I would pray, God, please don't let our house burn down. God, please don't let a tornado take our home that had happened around Vanessa back when I was a kid and my cousin's house got their roof torn off and they were just around the corner from us and don't tell. I'd pray every night, God, don't let a tornado hit us. God, don't let our house burn down. I was imagining things and fretting and fearing about them all the time. What might happen? And as a little boy, it was causing anxiety. I never told anybody. I just lived with it. Until I started having a relationship with Christ. I got saved when I was five, but when I was about seven years old, I remember being in Sunday school and the lesson started to hit home. I began to understand. I began to grow more. And that anxiety went away. We learned how to trust Christ. We have to bring in obedience every thought. And that doesn't mean, you say, well, does that mean you never struggle with it? No, that's not true. We all do. Bring them into obedience to Christ. Cut it off and go to prayer. Talk to the Lord. Verse 6. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's called self-discipline. Fight back when you've disobeyed. Punish yourself. Be ready to take vengeance or revenge all disobedience. Once you're walking right, your obedience is fulfilled. So we need to attack it, not avoid it. And how do we attack it? Number three, we apply the Bible. Apply the Bible. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 again, verse 5. Casting down imaginations, it is a battle of the mind. It is a battle of the mind. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are to be overcomers. We are to be conquerors. But it is a battle of the mind. So many have low self-esteem and they're afraid of failure and so they... Do not move forward. Others are afraid of what others might think, and they're afraid of public scrutiny, and so they cannot move forward. <clears throat> the Bible says we need to fight back. Casting down imaginations. That word casting is an interesting word. The word casting there has two meanings. It means to violently throw something to the ground. I think we know that, right? Uh, it just makes sense to cast somebody down. But here's what it also means. When they removed a body from the cross, they would say, cast it down. Now, for some, I suppose those Roman soldiers just cut the ropes and thump, down they'd come. But when I think about it, I think of Joseph of Arimathea going and begging the body of Jesus, and I think they tenderly took him down. It's not about the removal, and I'm sure there was other family members that came to those crosses and begged their bodies and took them and gave them a proper burial. It wasn't about the removal. It was about this. It was about taking down that which was already dead. 
we are crucified with Christ. And we are to crucify the affections and our lusts. It's a battleground of the mind. He says, so cast it down. It's dead. Put it out of your life. Get rid of it. It is a daily effort. It is a battle. He said, well, how do I do that? Through discipline and accountability uh, to the word of God and to God himself. Turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're just forward a few pages. Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why do you suppose Paul said that? Here's here's something. When you're rejoicing, you're not complaining. The book of James says, can bitter and sweet water flow out of the same fountain? No. When you're rejoicing, you're not worrying. It's awful hard to praise God with your heart and be worrying about something that's going on in your life. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That is self-control. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and even in me, uh, seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. I, I think it, we would agree tonight that if you've ever suffered from anxiety, what you're looking for is the God of peace. And notice what he says to do. There's a whole list of things I need you to think on. Set your mind on these things, things that are right and just and pure. Are you thinking on those things? You say, well, I, you, you know, I got so much going on. Take out a piece of paper and write down all your blessings. Pray over those. Thank God for those. Some, some would be here tonight and say, well, you just don't, this don't work, Pastor. Have you tried it? Have you tried it? I, I, I dare you tomorrow morning, get up and spend five minutes just thanking God. Do you know how hard that, that'll be? Because <laughs> we ask God for so many things. Just five minutes, don't ask God for anything. Just thank him. Just praise him. Praise him for everything. And just see if it doesn't help cheer your heart. Look back at Philippians chapter 4 again. So we're to acknowledge this problem by asking ourselves those questions. Is there, is there real evidence that I should be fearful here? Is this based on an inevitable outcome? Is this something that God has made a law in my life and this will happen? Or is this an imaginative outcome? I'm making things up. We are to attack it, not to avoid it. And we attack it by applying the Bible. But here's the th- Fourth thing we are to ask, we are to go to God in prayer. Look at verse 6. Be careful for nothing. Does anybody know what that word careful means in the Greek? Anxious. Don't be anxious over anything. He said, well, it's just easy for the apostle to say, uh, Roman prison. I could turn and show you his resume How many times he was beaten to death and left for dead, shipwrecked, imprisoned. And he says, be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing. But listen to what the solution is. But in everything by prayer and supplication, how? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 1 Peter 5, verse 7 is a verse that you all know. Casting all your care upon him. Do you know what the word care is in the Greek? Anxiety. Same word. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. 
I believe with all my heart that there are medical issues. I'm not trying to debunk anything your doctor has said to you. But can I say this? Why wouldn't you try Jesus? Why, why wouldn't we just discipline our lives and say, I'm going to spend more time in the Word and I'm going to pray and I'm going to learn how to cast my care upon Him. He cares for me. He loves me. I'm going to start examining my fear, that, that pressure, that stressor that leads to anxiety. I'm going to start looking at it and say, is this something that is rational? I know people that have done the same thing for 20 years and all of a sudden they're afraid to do it. And I say, did it hurt you for 20 years? Well, no. Then why are you afraid now? Why does that concern you now? That is the spirit of fear. That's the devil. That is unhealthy. That does not come from God. God has not given us that spirit. That's from somewhere else. But once we've examined it and realized it's irrational, then we have to attack it. And bring into captivity all those thoughts. Say, God, I'm not going to dwell on those. I'm going to dwell on your goodness. I'm going to dwell on your blessings. I'm going to dwell on, I have a roof over my head and I've got food on my table. I'm going to be thankful for my family. And I'm going to just ask God to bless my life continuously because he always has. And we need to overcome fear. Here's what the Bible says. Perfect love casteth out fear. Let me ask you this, who is perfect love? Only Jesus. We love on this earth, but not perfectly, so it can't be talking about us. I can't go over tonight, I can sympathize, and I can empathize, and I can give Kevin a hug. He probably wouldn't let me. I could give him a hug, and we could weep together, and we could pray together, but my love is not perfect. But if you let Christ in, his is. And perfect love casteth out fear. Let's pray. Father, I just feel like our time tonight is a feeble attempt to try to attack such a great subject. But Lord, I pray that the word of God, the scriptures that we we discussed tonight and opened up, that they would help people. I don't want to see people hurting. And Lord, I I know that there might come a day where, where I need that encouragement over an irrational fear and an anxious time in my life. I pray that you speak to hearts. And Lord, maybe there's somebody here that can help somebody else, know how to better pray for them, how to hold them up before God. So Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.